Welcome to La Raza Chronicles. Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza. Tonight's program features Noticias Sin Fronteras, news from the Americas, produced by Vilma V., interviews on the investigative reporting project Rape on the Night Shift, which delves into sexual abuse of immigrant women in the janitorial industry, a commentary by Nina Serrano on the bilingual San Francisco Mission District newspaper El Tecolote and its 45th year anniversary and call for poetry, Lisak Shalat brings us a piece about Mapuche singer Beatriz Pichi Malen on the music of indigenous Mapuche people of Chile and Argentina, and an interview conducted by Vilma V on Compañera, a book by Hilary Klein about the Zapatista women of Mexico. I'm your host this evening, Julieta Kusnid. All this and much more, stay tuned. Gracias. Buenas noches. This is Vilma V with Noticias Sin Fronteras, news headlines without borders from America Latina for the week ending June 28th. Estados Unidos, according to a new study by the Instituto Cervantes, the United States is now the world's second largest Spanish-speaking country after Mexico. The study found that the U.S. has more Spanish-speaking people than countries such as Colombia and Spain. The top three states in the U.S. with the highest concentration of Spanish speakers are New Mexico, California, and Texas. The Index of Human Development ranks Spanish as the second most important language on Earth behind English, but ahead of Mandarin. Spanish is the second most used language on Twitter in both London and New York and is the second most used language on Facebook. Colombia. A Colombian court has sentenced state legislator Frené Tapasco González to over 35 years in prison for ordering the murder of a Colombian journalist. The journalist, Orlando Sierra Hernández, who at the time was the deputy editor of La Patria newspaper in Manizales, a town in the coffee-growing region of Colombia. Álvaro Segura López, editor of La Patria, said that Sierra wrote a Sunday column for the 80-year-old newspaper in which he frequently highlighted political corruption and human rights abuses committed by leftist guerrillas, rival right-wing paramilitary armies, and state security agents. The Committee to Protect Journalists praised the sentencing, which came only after years of delay and questionable court rulings in the case. ID. Last Friday, Evans Paul, the Prime Minister of Haiti, warned that the Dominican Republic is creating a humanitarian crisis by cracking down on Haitian immigrants in the country. Last week, over 12,000 Dominican-born Haitians self-deported back to Haiti. The majority were children with their families and young adults. Evans called for a renewed dialogue with the Dominican Republic. He said, It's time to try and fix everything that needs fixing to improve relations between both countries, but also for the good of the people, for the respect of the people on both sides of the border. An estimated half a million Haitian migrants currently live in the Dominican Republic. Panama. Last Wednesday, the jailed former dictator and president of Panama, Manuel Noriega, broke a decades-long silence with a statement to his fellow countrymen. Noriega formally apologized and begged for forgiveness in his televised statement. He said, quote, I ask for forgiveness from any person who feels they were offended, affected, damaged, or humiliated by my actions or those of my superiors in the carrying out of orders. Noriega said that he decided to break his silence after consultation with his family, the church, and his conscience. The former dictator is serving a 60-year sentence in Panama. 
Relatives of the dictator's victims appeared unimpressed by Noriega's apology. Puerto Rico. Over the weekend, the governor of Puerto Rico, Alejandro Garcia Padilla, announced that the island will not be able to pay its billion-dollar debt and is seeking to negotiate with its creditors to avoid defaulting on its financial obligations. Padilla stated, This is not politics, this is math. If they do not come to the table, it will be bad for them. White House spokesperson Josh Ernest said that the U.S. is not contemplating a federal bailout. Puerto Rico's status as a commonwealth of the U.S. means it is unable to declare bankruptcy like other municipalities did, such as Detroit, back in 2013. Last week, U.S. Congress member Jeffrey Duncan circulated a letter to his colleagues urging them to create a federal, quote, financial control board to intervene in the island's financial affairs. Puerto Rico's struggling economy has been blamed for the unprecedented exodus of young people from the island. Brazil. This past weekend saw the opening of the first ever bike lane in the busy Avenida Paulista in the Brazilian capital of Sao Paulo. The distinctive red lane is now a permanent part of one of Latin America's busiest and most famous thoroughfares. Sao Paulo's mayor, Fernando Haddad, pledged to expand the city's network of bike lanes from approximately 60 kilometers to over 400 by 2016. An opinion poll of the capital city's residents found that over 60% backed the new bike lane policy. Student Camille Veronisi said, I've seen many accidents. They took too long to create more lanes. This will make it safer to ride a bike. The bike lanes are seen as a turning point for the city. And finally tonight, in some local news out of San Francisco, Galeria de la Raza's mural entitled Por Vida was defaced and set ablaze yesterday evening around 11 p.m. This was the third time that the mural, a triptych of gay couples and a transgender man by artist Manuel Paul, has been defaced. The mural was vandalized shortly after it was unveiled on June 13th, and it was just restored in time for gay pride only to suffer an arson attack last night. Annie Rivera, executive director of the Galleria, said that there may be security footage of Monday night's arson and that there is an active police investigation underway. San Francisco officials are treating the earlier acts of vandalism against a mural as hate crimes. This has been a summary of some of the latest news headlines from America Latina. I'm Vilma V for Noticias Sin Fronteras and La Raza Chronicles. If you have a news item that you would like to share or have us cover, email us at larazachronicles at kpfa.org. to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. On today's program, we are lucky to have two producers of a very important investigative reporting series called Rape on the Night Shift around the sexual abuse of immigrant women in the janitorial industry. From the Center for Investigative Reporting, Daffodil Altan, she has been working on this issue closely. I also have here from the investigative reporting program, I also have Andres Cidiel from the Investigative Reporting Program. Thank you both for joining me. 
Thank you. Thanks for having us. So this is a really crucial issue, and it's one that we don't hear enough about and many people don't even realize is a problem. So let's just take a step back. Why don't you all provide the context? How big of an issue is this? We're talking about the sexual assault and the rape of women who work in the janitorial world. Well, it's one of the things that we don't know how big the issue is. Uh, We started reporting on the sexual assault of women in the workplace with our previous reporting Rape in the Fields, which was a collaboration between CIR, IRP, Frontline, Univision, and KQED. And what we found was an underreported epidemic of sexual assault of women working in agriculture. And that led us to look into, well, what's going on in the other sectors of, of, of the economy where mostly undocumented women are working? And so we began to look at the janitorial industry. And what we found were cases and cases of women who are being sexually assaulted and raped at work. Getting numbers is very difficult. There's a lot of barriers to, to trying to do this type of reporting, starting with the fact that a lot of women don't report that they've been sexually assaulted. They don't report it to their bosses. They don't report it to the police. They don't report it even to their friends and family often because of shame, fear of deportation, lots of reasons why they wouldn't report. So without that reporting, we don't have a lot of numbers to look at. One of the things that we did find and some of the things that were shared with us is that when you don't see rapes being reported, you have to wonder what's going on there. So what we found was that in sectors of the society where where women are more empowered, they are reporting it more. You do see more numbers. But where you don't see people reporting is where you have to be worried. And that's one of the things that we found here in the janitorial industry. There aren't a lot of cases compared to uh, other sectors of the economy, but the cases that we found were very egregious, sexual assaults rapes, repeat offenders, and it was preying on the most vulnerable people in our society. So Daffodil, with the Center for Investigative Reporting and all these other collaborators, you all created videos, radio pieces, a lot of different blogs and articles that folks can read. So a lot of different ways to hear stories directly from people impacted. Can you share with us some of those stories? Reporting on rape and sexual assault is very complex for a number of different reasons. And you're dealing with victims who already are facing skepticism when it comes to viewers and audiences. And so it was very important for us to look for cases that already existed in the public record. So we wanted to have corroborating uh, documentation so that our stories were essentially as bulletproof as possible. And then the task became, you know, engaging with these victims, these women, and finding out where they were and if they were ready to tell their story on national television, showing their faces and putting their names out there. Um, We were very intentional about looking for stories and women who were willing to put their faces on camera so that the audience could engage with them also. it, It becomes very intimate for you as a viewer to engage directly with someone who's telling you about something very difficult, very traumatic. So I think critical to our reporting was the fact that we are we're a team of bilingual, bicultural um, reporters, producers who come from various backgrounds that were able to connect with some of the victims that we were identifying. So we didn't need a fixer per se. We didn't need translators. We were engaging with the women directly in Spanish in our native languages. And most of us come from working class backgrounds. So that was another area that I think in terms of access and when you're invading someone's space and when you're trying to generate a relationship that is eventually going to lead to a powerful interview, you need to be able to meet them 
where they're at. And so I think the fact that our reporting team was strong in those areas, that we didn't have to look for someone to translate for us, made a big difference in terms of the access we were able to get. That's the voice of Daphne Altan. She is part of the Center for Investigative Reporting. So tell us about some of the women you talked to. One of the things that was really important for us was demonstrating that this population of working women is, is very diverse. Even if a majority of the women in the film are Spanish speakers, they are very different, different in age, different in experience, different in country background, different in what they're doing now. I mean, some of them are still janitors and some of them aren't. And so I think it's important for audiences to see, too, that there is not a stereotypical sexual assault victim out there, that she doesn't look one way, that she isn't one thing, and also that the working immigrant woman isn't one type or one stereotype, that she's not a composite. The diversity of voices coupled, I think, with the similarities in their stories and the pattern of abuse, I think, is what is was affecting for us in terms of taking these stories in and producing the film and the various pieces that went along with it. We're talking about rape on the night shift, and this is an important investigative reporting project that it's undertaken by several organizations because it was really deemed a priority and there was some deep digging. So, Andres, why don't you talk to us about some of the things that you discovered through your reporting that maybe most people wouldn't consider when they're thinking about this issue? Well, one of the things that surprised me most, you know, when we did our original reporting on uh, sexual assault in the agricultural industry, you could imagine that these women were working in isolated environments, you know, far off in the field somewhere, far from from civilization, if you will. So what surprised me was how isolated the women could be who are working in the middle of the city. I mean, this any urban environment, anywhere there's a building, basically, there's somebody who's cleaning. But because of the nature of the work and the way it's structured now, the women are working at night when everybody else has gone home. So they are all alone in an office building with maybe only the supervisor knows where, where she is. The supervisor not only controls her schedule, he often has all the keys to the building and knows where all the security cameras are. So then she's in an extremely vulnerable position if, in the cases that we did find when there were sexual predators, to be able to take advantage of that situation. So one of the most surprising things to me was how vulnerable the women could be even if they're in the middle of the city. So let's hear a little bit from the reporting that you all did. So why don't we hear a clip? The woman you're about to hear from, her name is Lilia Garcia Brower, and she runs an organization out of Los Angeles that essentially does what you would hope that uh, an enforcement state agency or federal agency would do, which is to go out at night and essentially check up on janitors and see how they're doing, ask them questions about their working conditions, about their wages, about any other kind of physical violence that they may be experiencing. But they do this and they undertake this work. It's hours of going to slipping into buildings and trying to make some initial contact with janitors. It's very tedious work, but they've been able to bring cases through the state labor commission around wage and hour issues. So she is doing a lot of on the ground work that their organization is kind of solitary out there when it comes to finding out about janitors and their working conditions. Often the realities of the janitorial industry go undetected. Janitors are essentially invisible because they work at night and for enforcement people as well there isn't an aggressive enforcement program at night. Lilia Garcia Brower is an industry expert who monitors the working conditions of janitors. I'm used to the janitor being someone who was part of the company. 
or part of the school district or part of the mall, you know, part of the company itself. But that's changed, right? Because of the economic realities, there's a huge shift to contracting out services. And the nature of the industry, the structure of the industry, makes it that much harder for contractors to ensure that the workplace is safe. Many companies look very good on paper. But what matters is what's happening at the work site. Employers need to make sure that their supervisors are following their directives and that their employees know what to do if they come into harm's way. If they can't afford to do that, they shouldn't be in business. We just heard a clip from this very important investigative reporting series called Rape on the Night Shift. And we have a couple producers in the house that spent a long time reporting this important issue. So, Andres, you work with the investigative reporting program, but you all join together to address and target this issue in many different ways through video and radio and do, producing a lot of different blogs on this issue. First of all, how can people see more? Can you tell us about the different outlets and avenues that people can actually really dig in and hear the stories? Well, that's one of the great benefits to collaborating with so many different organizations is that we are able to get it out on so many different platforms. So if you want to see the film in English, you can go to the Frontline website at pbs.org. And there's a Spanish version which aired on Univision, and you could go to their website and see that. Uh, the Investigative Reporting Program's website has information as well as the Center of Investigative Reporting is, and KQED. So we, we have the radio stories, the films, and English, Spanish, print, blog. It's all out there on the web. Also, if you Google rape on the night shift, all of it will come up. What are ways that people listening can be a part of addressing this often ignored issue? I think one of the first things you can do is start talking to the people who actually clean your building, clean your office, find out who they work for, how long have they been working there, what are their working conditions, how are they getting paid, do they like their job, what are their shifts like. I think once you start paying attention to this issue in the various spaces you occupy, it becomes very real very quickly. And I think that's for the first step that people can do is start to inquire, who is the company that's cleaning my building? Often these companies, clients, uh, property owners, will contract out the cleaning to other smaller groups who then many times then subcontract out even to even smaller groups. And what we found is in these subcontracting uh, companies, there's even less oversight than you would see in, in any other situation. So I think starting to ask questions, who's cleaning the building, who's, who is this company, is the, is the first step to start to bring awareness of what's going on in your own space. You can ask if they have policies that protect their workers, sexual harassment policies. Uh, you can ask if they're a union contractor. I mean, there are some initial questions that you could start asking either of the building owner, manager, or directly of the workers about their working conditions. And there's been a lot of reporting that you two have done and that other folks working on this project have focused around on the issue of how so many of workers are undocumented and how that factor, that fear issue, has also played a part in the underreporting in this world. But through your reporting, what did you two find were some of the other factors that 
led to this being sometimes pushed to the side. Well, I think we also need to remember that rape in general is underreported, unfortunately. And so um, you add that fact to the conditions of these working women. A lot of them are single mothers. They can't afford to lose their jobs. Uh, They're being threatened with their jobs. And so in the cases that we were taking apart, a lot of them were just drowning in fear. And, you know, if they're undocumented, they were afraid of being separated from their children. But the women who were not undocumented were afraid of not being able to provide for their children. So it really becomes an issue of can I afford to not put food on the table if I'm going to go to the police? And can I trust law enforcement? And will action be taken? And if they're working for a company that did not have HR policies, did not have any sort of hotline, they don't even know where to turn to, especially if the only person they know to be supervising them is the person who's sexually assaulting them. I'm speaking to Daffodil Altan as well as Andres Sidel. We're talking about the important project of rape on the night shift. This is a really, it's video, it's a great documentary, it's a radio pieces, it's, there are a lot of different articles people can read, and there's a lot of different angles that this issue is being targeted and addressed. So where do you all see this going? With the work you did on rape in the fields that ended up becoming an opportunity for people to really take action, there are toolkits and they just had a huge life. A lot of movement came out of the reporting that happened through that project. Where do you all see this going? Well, in terms of reporting, there's there's a lot more avenues of reporting that have opened up for us. I mean, you can once you start looking at sexual assault in the workplace, you can start looking at all the other segments where vulnerable people work, whether that's in agricultural, janitorial, hospitality, construction, the restaurant industry. These are all sectors of the economy that have vulnerable populations where if we were to look, I'm sure we would find similar problems. Some of our reporting also took us into the area of labor trafficking, where we were finding people who were being forced to work against their will. These are people who often come to this country and arrive in debt to someone who then forces them to work without pay. It's a modern form of slavery, and we've been finding that in the same populations as well. So we've been looking into those areas for more reporting. There's been a lot of attention to sexual assault and rape on college campuses and in the military, and one of the things I think that we need to remember is that janitors are cleaning college campuses and military bases also. So, you know, we don't know what will happen in terms of policy or laws being changed, but um, that is something that came out of rape in the fields. There was a law enacted in California. So there's a lot of potential for impact. We're going to hear another clip from Rape on the Night Shift. This is a woman named Erica Morales who worked for uh, the biggest janitorial company in the country. She was supervised by a man who, it turns out, was a convicted sex offender. Yo quedé destrozada, yo quedé muy mal porque me tuve que 
que cubrir por lo que él me había logrado arrancar. Y él se burlaba de mí y se reía en mi cara. Es algo que no se va a olvidar. You know, sexual assault, rape, those are crimes. So if that happens at work, you know, everyone should go to the police. Everyone should feel like they can go to the police. And that's one of the things that the women that we engaged with for this reporting project, they had various feelings on this because some of them went to the police and a lot of them didn't. So there are questions around why are some of the alleged perpetrators not in prison? Uh, and that has to do with um, criminal cases not being brought. In terms of most of these women being undocumented, there's also the fear of approaching law enforcement because of the perception that they might be deported. Uh, one of the things that's important to note is that whether you are here uh, legally or not, whether you're working with permission or not, you're still covered by the same laws as anybody else who's here in this country. So those laws are there to protect you. There's this, a thing called a U visa, which is available to victims of abuse. If you come forward and you cooperate with the criminal investigation, you can get a visa to stay in, in the country for a period of two to three years, so you don't have to be afraid of being deported. With all these different avenues, there's a beautiful documentary in English and in Spanish that tackles this complex issue that is very difficult to report on. So tell us a little bit about what, what needs to be invested to do this kind of investigative journalism. Well, you need the support of organizations that are going to stick behind you to do this because this is not easy to do. Not only are there very few stats and very few reports that you can cite and, and look at, but it's also very difficult to get sources to come forward and talk about these things. So it takes a lot of reporting time. So between all the organizations that we work for, uh, IRP, CIR, Frontline Univision, and KQED, all these organizations, having built this collaboration from our previous reporting on Rape in the Fields, you could say that we've now invested over three years in this strand of reporting. So it takes a huge investment and support by the reporting organizations to put the time and resources into getting these stories out. There's no way we would have been able to do it, or we wouldn't have gotten the stories that we got had we not had the time and the support from our organizations. There's just no way. That's the voice of Daffodil Altan. She is with the Center for Investigative Reporting. And we've also heard from Andres Cediel, and he is with the Investigative Reporting Program. And they both have collaborated intensively on this project, Rape on the Night Shift, which has brought together reporters from many, many organizations to make this a reality. So again, how can people access and see and read and listen to the reporting? You can Google Rape on the Night Shift and it'll all come up. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles on June 13, 2015. I'm so pleased to announce that El Tecolote, the bilingual Mission District newspaper, is celebrating its 45th anniversary with the publication of an anthology of poetry to be called Poetry in Flight, Poesia en Vuelo. And the best part is that you, dear listeners, are invited to submit up to three of your poems, less than four pages, for consideration. The editors are Eva Martinez, Francisco X. Alarcón, Haroldo Teresón, and myself, Nina Serrano. 
We're open to all themes such as celebration of cultural roots, heritage, cosmology, love, familia, immigration, social protests, and poems reflecting the current social dilemma facing the Latino community in the Mission District and in general. The deadline for submission is July 27, 2015. Please send your manuscript in Word using 12-point Times New Roman. Poems can be in English, Spanish, or bilingual. Please include a brief bio under 60 words. And if you had poems in the 40th anniversary issue, the literary issue of El Tecolote in 2010, please feel free to submit new poems and revise your bio. Thank you. You can email your submissions to vuelopoesia at gmail.com. That's V-U-E-L-O-P-O-E-S-I-A at gmail.com. We look forward to receiving your work. The deadline is July 27, 2015. Lately, we've been inundated with hate crimes, like the church murders in Charleston, South Carolina last week. Since then, five more black churches in the South have been set afire. Fortunately, there were no deaths. But now, closer to home. A Mission District community organization has been hit by hate. On the wall of the Galleria de la Raza on the busy corner of 24th and Bryant in San Francisco was torched. No one was injured. This much-respected community art organization and its gay and lesbian sisters and brothers. We'll hear more details about this next week, but our hearts and minds are with the Galleria de la Raza. This has been Nina Serrano with La Raza Chronicles. I'm Vilma V, and I'm sitting in the studio. With me is Hilary Klein. She's an activist, an organizer, and an author of Compañeras Zapatistas Women's Stories, and it's published by Seven Stories Press. How are you, Ms. Klein? I'm so good, and thank you for inviting me. And I'm going to start about one who I, when I read the book, was really interested in, Comandante Ramona. Uh-huh. Tell me about her. So Comandante Ramona was a really key political figure um, she the, the the title Comandante sometimes sounds militaristic, and the Zapatistas do have they have a rebel army that still exists even though they haven't used their weapons ever since 1994. They're very brief uprising, but they also have a whole you know it's it's this very broad social movement um, with a political leadership, and so the Comandantes are the highest political leadership of the EZLN. And Comandante Ramona, very early on, was was just a key figure in terms of um, helping to organize uh, communities early on to recruit to belong to the Zapatista movement in the first place. And then she became um, she became known, pretty known as as a well known figure, um, helping to negotiate, for example, a peace treaty between the EZLN and the Mexican government, which was signed but never. Um, but never implemented by the Mexican government. She was key in a number of spaces. Um, she was also really important in terms of opening up space for women in particular as a role model and encouraging women, other women, to get involved. And she helped to pull together ideas from from different women for what would become the Women's Revolutionary Law, which became kind of the guiding framework for women's rights within Zapatista territory. She and many other kind of of the early women leaders, political leaders as well as military leaders, 
gathered ideas into what became the Women's Revolutionary Law. Um, so she had an important role in that. She sadly passed away in 2006 from cancer. She is very dearly missed um, by her compañeros and compañeras in Chiapas. And I think really around the world was recognized as kind of what the Zapatista movement came to represent in terms of the voice of the voiceless and, you know, women as well as men, young people, older people taking on their own history and, and changing the world around them. Was she a mother herself? You know, I don't actually know. I never knew her personally because she worked in, in sort of a different region than I did. And I asked that because it seems like it's a theme in the book, whether women have the time or the opportunity to pursue a revolutionary struggle if they have families. And some women seem to have foregone that and decided to go one route. So t- can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, primarily that was a choice made by insurgent women who, you know, left their homes and left their families and went up into the mountains. And there was a very clear commitment, especially at the beginning, you know, that meant not having a family, not having children. In the villages, it's more of a dynamic of, you know, women historically were very much expected to stay home and and take care of the family, which is important, dignified, you know, amazing work. Um, and also it, it historically meant that women were restricted to that was that was all they were expected to do and, and very much restricted to being in the home. So I think this is this has been addressed in a couple different ways. One of the um, one of the points in the in the women's revolutionary law is that women have the right to control or to decide how many children they have. So that element of reproductive justice, which women all over the world are still fighting for, um, yeah, has, has been an important shift within Zapatista territory. And the other shift that I think has a little bit slower but has definitely been taking place is the acknowledgement of domestic work and childcare being shared between men and women. So ensuring that women have more of a possibility of leaving the home and participating in political spaces, in their community affairs, in whatever different ways that they want to be involved. Yeah, when you talk about the women's revolutionary law, it looks like it has 10 main tenets. And a lot of them sound like, you know, straight out of first wave feminism, you know, the right to work and receive a just salary the right to education for their children to have primary care and health and nutrition, um, the right to choose their partner and not to be forced into marriage. And then the eighth one, I mean, it's kind of sad to me that this has to be even written down. No woman shall be beaten or physically mistreated by family members or by strangers. So, and rape and attempted rape will be severely punished. So can you talk about that? You know, I think it's an interesting point because even though you can make a comparison and it's a very it's a very accurate comparison in terms of like what the that that those points being similar to kind of what first wave feminism was about the women were very much they're very clear about the fact that it came from them you know oh, that sure. it didn't come from outsiders right, you know right. and, and just just wanting to clarify that in yes. case you know anyone sort of misunderstood Thank that you. Uh, you know and i think that around the world it's it's common for women to still be living under these types of of conditions unfortunately and just to be clear about that as well it's it's very much an indigenous movement a movement for indigenous rights but, you know, and the, and the families, the, the Zapatista women often talk about ways that they want to change, hold on to certain elements of their culture. You know, the connection to the land, for example, their spirituality, their 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 language. But there's also things that they want to change and that that doesn't make them any less indigenous. And that's all to say that the ways that these communities were often oppressive towards women is not, in my opinion, is not at all because they are indigenous. You know, women face these issues all around the world. So I think that, yes, women were 
in very kind of restrictive roles, very limited and very oppressive and, and even violent situation up into the late 20th century. And so in that sense, yes, you know, they were facing conditions that in many places, first wave feminism was kind of able to to change into a large degree in this country, for example. And at the same time, I feel like those are things we're still fighting for, too. Because you know? it's true. Yes. <laughs> the right is. to live free of violence is you know, absolutely something we're still fighting for. Yeah. So then let me put it in the context of being a Latina in this whole concept of machismo. Right. Yeah. And you kind of touched upon that. So are they fighting against that concept? They're very much fighting against the concept of machismo, but they're also very clear that they're in the struggle together as men and as women, you know, as children and as elders um, across the board. And so you know, they, they very much engage with men in their own families, with men in their own movement to transform some of that consciousness. And there's, you know, there's some really key, um, there's some very compelling testimony in the book as well from men about how they changed, you know, how they, their, their own ideas changed and, and what that process looked like for them. But yes, in terms of the concepts that they're trying to change, they very much talk about, you know, uprooting machismo, uprooting patriarchy. And that I think they've made tremendous strides, but it's also it's a long process. You know, it takes time. So at one point, the Zapatistas banned alcohol. Yes. Talk about that. That was actually going back to this question of of living free of violence. It was very related to that. So the Zapatistas have a process of when they pass an internal law or an internal kind of agreement, it has to be discussed in every village and every community before it can be passed as a law. That's kind of, you know, part of the process they go through. So the proposal originally came from the Zapatista leadership, especially the military leadership, when the um, when it was still a clandestine movement. So before the uprising in 1994, they were this kind of secret organization in the hills and you know the mountains and jungles of Chiapas, and really their their sense was they didn't want to have people drinking and kind of blurting out this secret organization or the the, the plans for the uprising. Mm-hmm. But women really saw it in terms of their own health, their safety, you know, being free from violence, but also community health and. They talk about, for example, the ways that um, alcohol had been used historically to keep their own community weak and disorganized. And, for example, some of the the men, when they worked as laborers on these big plantations, you know, haciendas or fincas, they were oftentimes paid in alcohol instead of in money. And that's just an example of, you know, how consciously it was used to, you know, and this, again, happens all over the world. I mean, we see it in many places. But so women really supported this proposal and it overcame, I think, resistance. But a lot of men at that time were like, I don't want to stop drinking. I can imagine. <laughs> so, the, um, so the women's push to say, yes, this is really important for our families, for our communities, for the fabric, kind of the social fabric of our lives, were able to get that agreement passed. And I think it was an, ex- an early example of how women were really beginning to exercise their kind of collective political muscle and achieve that. It also didn't happen overnight. You know, it happened over time that, that, to implement it. They continued over time. I'm Vilma V. We're talking to author Hilary Klein, and she wrote a book called Compañeras Zapatista Women's Stories. Let me ask you a little bit about the phrase, which I thought was so beautiful, and they said it in um, regards to Comandante Ramona, but it seems like it applies to many women in the book. She was a woman who gave birth to new worlds. Yes. Can you talk about that phrase? Yes. That was, you know, that was a phrase that was used to describe her when she passed away. And like I said, she's, you know, she's very dearly missed by, you know, by her compañeros and compañeras throughout Chiapas. But I think the sense 
that 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 phrase captures from Ramona, but you know, like you said, from the Zapatista movement in general, is that this doesn't this takes time, right? Where we can envision, we can dream about a world of justice and of dignity, and then we have to build it. Mm. And you know, the Zapatistas have have helped to catalyze these incredibly transformative moments. 1994, the uprising really shifted a lot in terms of, you know, politically, economically, in terms of gender transformations. There was this ripple effect around the world. But at the same time, they know that creating that world of justice is something that we build over time. You know, so this idea of giving birth to new worlds is, you know, something that sometimes happens quickly and sometimes happens really slowly and and, and really kind of step by step. And part of it, it seems like they worked in collective, right? Yes. Were there? Tell me about the women's collective. Is it different than one set up by men? And if and there is a difference, how so? Yeah, that was still. Um, they're still organized a little bit by a gender division of labor. So you know that that division does exist. And um, men oftentimes have coffee cooperatives, for example, or cattle raising cooperatives, whereas women oftentimes have vegetable gardens or they sell, they, they create, produce artisan crafts and artisania and sell that to an external market or they have uh, chicken raising collectives or, you know, other economic um, economic areas where they can generate resources by working collectively, invest those resources back into their own village um, to address whatever collective need might arise. So whether it's supporting the autonomous school or very early on, you know, when you were asking about women being involved, even though they have families and children, one of the things that the collectives, the women's collectives did early on that was key was paying women's bus fare to go to a regional meeting. And that was a way of ensuring her participation in these regional meetings. So that was when they would get together like on a women's gathering and it would be just women? Yeah, there are a number of spaces that, that women get together that are specifically women's spaces. Um, the women's collectives are one where they're organized around an economic activity, but they're all women working together. They're making decisions together about where to invest those resources, for example. And then the women's gathering is another example where those are usual, usually regional gatherings where women from different villages will get together and they will either, um, they'll learn something new, they'll share experiences. Um, it's more of like a meeting type of space, but they'll sing songs, they'll, they'll do cultural events, they'll play basketball. Um, women playing basketball was this huge transformative thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in the in the villages where you see women playing basketball, it's one of the kind of ways that, you know, kind of women have broken certain barriers. It's actually really interesting. These women's gatherings are a space dedicated more to kind of political and cultural kind of education and growth for, for women collectively. Yeah, it seems kind of minor, but it also reminds me of one of the stories that I remember in the book where the women were very upset that a man had snatched a calculator out of a woman's hand when she was kind of painstakingly trying to work with that. So can you tell us about that story? Because sure. it seems like minor, but... Yeah, so that was actually in one of the workshops that, that I was giving on kind of math and accounting, which was kind of a funny process of... That was one of the things that the women leadership asked us to do in our project with women's cooperatives. And it was only funny in the sense that I hadn't expected my kind of role in contributing to this revolutionary movement to be teaching math and accounting. But <laughs> once I thought about it, it made perfect sense. You know, women oftentimes hadn't gone to school as girls, um, didn't have the kind of skills to run the cooperative on their own. And so they would sometimes... Um, ask men to to run the cooperative for them. And so 
these workshops were geared towards women having the skills to run the cooperatives on their own. But for the villages that, that didn't have a woman who felt comfortable doing that, they would have men kind of administering the store, for example, if the women had a collective store. And so this was one of those situations where there were men and women in the workshop. And so, as you mentioned, the the man sort of snatched the calculator away. We were just we were learning some you know some particular thing about running the store, and uh, the women were frustrated by it. But but what was most interesting was their kind of response was you know they collectively sort of talked about what what to do about it. They decided to approach the the male coordinator of the this project who was helping out with the stores and asked him to talk to the men. And he'd always been a real ally um, to the women, even in, you know, there were sometimes community assemblies where he was criticized by other men for being so supportive of women's rights. Mm. And he really stood up for them and stood up for what he believed in as a male ally. So he was a little bit reluctant at first, but he did. He talked to the other men. And what's incredible about all this is that everybody's everybody was so sort of open on some level. Even the, the men were also really open to receiving this feedback. And so later in the day, almost the exact same thing repeated itself. And one of the younger men, you know, it was the older women who were who were learning to use the calculators and were a little bit slower at catching on. And so one of the younger men, again, you know, sort of took the calculator and well-intentioned, right? He was wanting to help Turn show ahead. her, teach her, say, here, this is how you do it. But they kind of looked at each other and then one of the other men nudged him and, and sort of said, you know, hey, remember what we were talking about earlier? And he said, oh, yeah, I'm so sorry. And he, he gave the calculator back and she just finished at her own pace. And it was just, you know, like you said, it was so minor. It was such a tiny thing. But, you know, it just it stood out to me as an example of, you know, how we can transform, how we can transform ourselves and how we can engage in dialogue with people in our community to encourage them to to change as well. And while those things are made up of, you know, many tiny steps, we can we can make this really enormous progress. And I think the, the Zapatista women's experience highlights something which I think is true in, in many different contexts, but how connected that sort of personal empowerment is to building collective political power. Because once women had really kind of begun to transform themselves in terms of their own sense of self, their own sense of power, what that looked like in terms of their collective political power was was enormous. So let's bring it back to the present. You were there for six years, mm-hmm. and it's been a few years now. What's the present day struggle look like? W- what can we tell about it now? Like, how can it help women today? So the Zapatista movement is still very alive and well. You know, it's not in the kind of international spotlight in the same ways that it was, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But it's still very alive and well. I think it still is very instructive as an example of what kind of an alternative to neoliberalism can look like, to what global capitalism is. In terms of what the Zapatistas have accomplished in terms of their, you know, we were talking a little bit about their their, their, their local, um, their alternative healthcare system and education, all of that is part of this project of self-determination of what they call a project of indigenous autonomy. But what they've been able to accomplish in their own territory, I think is extremely still very inspirational in terms of what alternatives to global capitalism can look like. And then with women, you know, I think we were talking about so many of the things that they're fighting for may look very different, but are similar to what we're fighting for here and, and what women are fighting for all around the world. And I think one of the key lessons from a speech that Comandante Esther made in 2001 before the Mexican Congress, she talked about 
women being oppressed three times over, or, you know, she was talking about Zapatista women, because we're indigenous, she said, because we're poor, and because we're women. And I think that interconnection between race and poverty and gender is so key everywhere and something that is is a really important lesson for us, for me as an organizer in this country, to remember how connected those things are, that, you know, women's rights cannot be disconnected from the fight for social justice, racial justice, and economic justice. So what does it mean to bring the movement home? How do we do that? Because this sounds amazing, but I'm not going to go live in hell, <laughs> maybe in the future. But how do we bring that here in the 21st century sort of urban Bay Area or even in New York, if you live in New York? How, how do we bring that energy to us? Well, I think it might look different for different people. But, you know, definitely the Zapatistas will tell you that, fighting for justice in your own community is the best kind of solidarity. So they definitely appreciate, you know, the solidarity efforts that have happened throughout the years, but they will consistently tell people, and especially people from the U.S., you know, they'll say, can you please go home and try and fix that mess you have up there? So, you know, the the book doesn't, it doesn't just sort of lay out lessons, like this is what I think this would look like for any one person in particular. But my hope from the book is that, these these are stories of, of struggle, they're stories of courage, they're stories of dignity, and that every reader who, who reads the book, who engages in these stories, will figure out for themselves, you know, what that transformation might look like, whether you're a student, whether you're a mother, whether you're in the LGBTQ community, what that sort of transformation looks like. But one one thing that for me is, is very meaningful as a kind of lesson that I carry with me as an organizer in, in this country is kind of the balance between the humility that they have what we were talking earlier about this concept of make the road by walking, that they know they don't have the all the answers, that nobody has all the answers, that that we're building this world of, of justice as we go and it's going to take a long time. And on the other hand, the kind of chutzpah to say that doesn't mean that we shouldn't take it all on, you know, that we that they declared war on the Mexican government. They took on global capitalism itself. The women took on, you know, uprooting patriarchy. So they're big in their dreams. They're ambitious in what they want. And at the same time, you know, they're humble in terms of of knowing that that you don't have to have all the answers to do that to start. So so I would say dream big. But, uh, but, you know, start today. I'd like to thank my guest, Hillary Klein. She's an organizer, an activist, and the author of Compañeras Zapatistas Women's Stories, published by Seven Stories Press. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Singer-songwriter Beatriz Pichimelin takes her inspiration from the music of the Mapuche, the indigenous people of southern Chile and Argentina. She was interviewed in Santiago, Chile, by Oakland resident Letzak Shalat. Her name means little girl in Mapundungu, the language of the Mapuche people of Argentina and Chile. But there is nothing small about her voice and cultural impact. Pichimalen sings songs both powerful and playful to nature and her community, building upon Mapuche traditions to create a distinctly contemporary sound. Vingaida, Mabuyen, Ma. 
Born and raised in the province of Buenos Aires, Argentina, Pichi Malen, now in her 50s, says she was born to sing. I think I was born to sing. I have always sung. Nothing made me happier than singing. Pichi Malen is the great-granddaughter of Colikeo, a 19th-century Mapuche lonco, or chief. She spoke Spanish and English before she sought to learn her ancestral language, Mapundungun. And although she never studied music and says she knows nothing about reading a score, Beatriz Pichi Malen is hailed throughout Argentina and Chile as an interpreter of Mapuche songs. stage, Pichi Malen looms large, wearing traditional Mapuche headdresses of ribbons and silver medallions. Accompanying herself on the Rally Kutrun, the traditional Mapuche drum, she mixes chants that ring of rituals and songs without words to fill the auditorium with the sounds of rain or the wind. How does the river sound? It flows. When we sing that harvest song that says Kayayayay, what does it mean? Nothing. It's the sound of the fruit of the pewen falling, like the sound of rain. Her songs also bring alive the voices of Mapuche elders. In concert, P. 
Pichi Malen shares the stage with her band of percussionists and synthesizers. Yet for all her musical experimentation, she never strays far from what she says is the essence of Mapuche song. It tells a story or expresses an emotion simply, without pretense. It's beautiful. These are simple songs, uncomplicated, genuine. The music speaks for itself. Nearly one million people claim Mapuche heritage. Like Pichi Malen, most do not grow up speaking its language. But Mapuche culture is not a museum piece, she says. It lives with us. It is part of Argentina and it is part of Chile. Pichi Malen calls herself a disciple of Atahualpa Yupanqui, the legendary guitarist poet of the Argentine Pampas. And she says she's still mad at Freddie Mercury of Queen for dying so young. But when she's on stage, it's her abuelos, her elders, who Pichi Malen is listening to. Even when I am on stage putting on a show, I can never separate myself from my Mapuche spirit. It's my own little celebration, you know. That was Mapuche songstress Beatrice Pichi Melen, interviewed by Oakland resident Lexat Shalat. You can learn more about Pichi Melen at her website, www.pichimelen.com. That's P I C H I M A L E N.com. And listen to selections from her albums Plata and Anil on Spotify. That wraps up our show. Muchísimas gracias por escuchar el programa. If you'd like to listen to our show again or share it with a friend, you can like us on Facebook. That's La Raza Chronicles on Facebook.com. Or you could also go to SoundCloud.com and you can listen or download our show there. Muchísimas gracias. If you'd like to share with us some news you think we should cover or events that you think we should put in our calendar, you can always email us at Chronicles at kpfa.org. Muchísimas gracias y buenas noches. Stay tuned for a vacha.